for today. We're in Romans 8, and we're starting a new series. I hope I've got it up on the screen. And it's no fair for the preacher because it's like putting me on the top of Mount Everest and asking me to describe the view. It's a lifetime occupation. So we're going to try to limit ourselves. And my assignment today is to speak about two things. It's to speak about the fact that we're forgiven and the fact that we're free. And I want to take them each in their turn. So if you look at your text, I want you to think through the logic of this with me. Paul says... There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And whenever you see a therefore, you ask what it's there for, right? And Paul has spent seven chapters expanding on the glorious notion of what he calls the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is the power of God to salvation. So he spent seven chapters going through the incredible work that God has done on behalf to save us in Jesus Christ. And he says now... I'm going to talk about the Christian life, but it's all based on that. And if you forget that, it's like missing the bottom button of the coat. All the rest of the bottom, the buttons can be fine, but the whole thing's out of order. So if you look at the text and you think for a second, he says there's no condemnation, which means there was condemnation before, and now there's no condemnation. So my questions are two to begin. First of all, why was there condemnation in the past? And second, why now is there no condemnation? Everybody with me so far? All right, so when we talk about condemnation, we have to talk about sin. One of my favorite stories about sin is of the fraternity guys who one of their friends was kind of in a drunken stupor and he was really tired and he kind of was zonked and they decided to play a trick on him so they took... Um, Limburger cheese, and they put it on his mustache because they were really jealous of his mustache. And when he got up the next morning, he got up and he said, I stink. And then he kind of looked around the room, and they were enjoying this greatly as they were sort of all around the door. And he said, this room stinks. And then he kind of pulled himself together, and he walked out into the hall, and he said, this hall stinks. And then he went to the living room, and he walked to the living room, and he said, this living room stinks. And he couldn't get rid of the smell. And so finally he went outside, and he said, the whole world stinks. And that's the situation that Paul is describing. The whole world stinks, and the problem is right under our nose. <laughs> now, it's very important for us as Christians to understand that the problem Paul is describing in the Western church is hugely underestimated. And the problem is simply sin in one word, in one image. We are sinners. We are rebels who need to lay down their arms. In fact, if you want your C.S. Lewis quote for the morning, we are not moral creatures in need of improvement. We are sinners who need to lay down our arms. And the problem with talking about sin in the church in the West, at the beginning of the 21st century, is our standards stink. That is to say, you use the wrong standard. You do know that when you evaluate something and come to a conclusion, it's all about what standard you use, right? I love the story of the young boy whose ruler was one foot tall and came to his mom at about age six and talked about how great a giant he was. Well, it's great. You are a giant in the land of one foot rulers. It's all about what you use. My favorite story about measuring posts is, and I've told you this one before, I I never cease to love telling again because my dad grew up in New York City. He's the guy who made it big. You remember this? the eastern immigrant guy. He finally made it millions of dollars, and his lifelong dream was to bring his mother over to prove that he made it. You do know this about men, right? We all want to figure out what we want to do when we grow up, and we all want to prove ourselves to our mother. You do know that about men, right? And it was true of him. So he he got his yacht, which he spent all this money to buy, 
And he brought his mother out into New York Harbor and the Hudson River on this beautiful, uh, spectacular summer day. And when the moment came, what he was, which he was waiting for, for sort of the piece de resistance, he went underneath the boat and he changed his clothes that he started with. And he came out with this big captain's uniform and said, Captain on it. And he looked at his mother and he said, Look, Mama, I'm a captain. And the old lady surveyed him calmly. And then, as one accustomed to deflating the ego of a bumptious child, she answered, Sammy, by you, you is a captain, and by me, you is a captain. But by captains, you is no captain. (laughs) And there isn't a person here who can't relate. The question is, what is the standard? And the standard is our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is what humanity properly lived looked like. That's the standard. Now let's pause and go through five images that the Bible uses for this sin. Let's take it carefully and one at a time. First, one of the images that's used is to miss the mark. It's from archery. And the idea is you thought your day was going to end up like that, and you go to bed at night and you say to yourself, how did the arrow end up over there? And everybody here knows exactly that image. And the thing about standards is even the standards that we set for ourselves Very often at the end of a day or a week or a month, did anybody have the day they were expecting, the month they were expecting, the year that they were expecting? The arrow, we don't even meet our own standards, but I'm not talking about, and the Bible's not talking about our standards. The Bible's talking about God's standards. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. That's the standard. And the question is, if that's the standard, how's your arrow doing? Ah, see, now it starts to get interesting. Second image. It means to step across the line. It's an image for rebellion, that C.S. Lewis quote. It's that time when I was six and my brother was four and he was smaller than me and I enjoyed exuding power over him. And on the beach in the Adirondacks where we used to go in the summer at Lake George, I would draw a line and i say, I dare you to step over it. I only did this until he was about the same size as me, then I stopped. That's another story for another time. But you know what I'm going to tell you. He just was not willing to be defiled and intimidated by his brother. He would find some way to go across the line, in which case I was delighted to take him on and to fight him and to thwart him. That was the whole point. And it's just like that story, the children's story, right? The parents go away. You can do whatever you want while the babysitter's here. Just don't look up the chimney. And everybody knows what's going to happen when the parents go away. At some point, they're desperately, just because you draw a line, we have this incredible capacity to want to go over lines. We don't want limitations, especially limitations from God. The third image is slipping across the line. And this is also important because we live in a culture where somehow if it's not intentional, it's not wrong. And the Bible knows nothing of that. There's a whole category in Roman Catholic theology. It's called Vincible ignorance. It means if you don't know what to do and you slip over the line, you can't say in your defense, well, I didn't know. I didn't know the tax code, IRS. I'm sorry. I didn't know. As if that's an excuse with the guy who's doing the audit and he's impressed. It's not going to work. Right? Doesn't, it doesn't, there's certain things where it's your job to know. And if you don't know because you slipped, or you weren't aware, that's still not an excuse. I didn't know, uh, officer. I didn't realize it was 75 miles an hour that I was going. I thought I thought I was going 65. I wasn't looking, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know the deal. If you slip across the line, you still get across the line, and the fact that you slipped because of your ignorance is not an excuse. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Still ganging up on you. That's three images so far. Missing the mark, stepping across the line, slipping across the line. Fourth image is lawlessness, literally anomia in, in Greek, 
when you want to make something the opposite of something, you, you put an A in front of it. So a theist is somebody who believes in God, and an atheist is somebody who doesn't believe in God. Nomos is the word for law, and this word is anomia, which means lawlessness. When I was growing up, my dad, I told you, grew up in New York City, and um, in the 70s, early 70s, there was a blackout. Some of you may remember this, you may have read about it. Do you remember what happened? There was mass looting of the stores, almost instantaneously. It was a shocking event for lots of reasons, but one of the things that people couldn't believe was the degree to which subconscious subterranean rebellion erupted almost immediately once limitations were removed. It's that terrifying early moment in uh, the wonderful book, The Lord of the Flies, where you start to realize... Oh, this is great. They're on an island. They're boys. There are no adults. There are no rules. There's no impositions. And then all of a sudden you start to realize, oh, no, there are no rules. They're only adolescents. And boy, boy, does the book go down, 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 down. Because if there are no rules, it's amazing our capacity to do with the rebellion what we want, how bad we can get. That's the image for sin. And finally, my personal favorite is one that's the hardest, but I think the most important. And literally in the Greek, it means to owe, O-W-E. And the idea of this word is basically driving at gratitude. That is to say, are you living properly in the light of what you've been given, having a sense of what you owe because of what you've been given? So for example, you can think of it in terms of your family. Think of it like the Ten Commandments. I mean, does any of us Really, love, love your mother and your father, right? You shall love your mother and father. That's one of the Ten Commandments. Does any of us really feel like we lived a life where we properly thanked our parents for all that we've done for them? All you have to do is be an adult and have a child. And you realize, oh my gosh, this was a whole lot more than I... My parents worked really hard, right? And you, and you, you start being a lot more thankful to them. It's that kind of an image. And the, so the image is this. What does it mean to live a life which reflects back to God the gratitude for the fact that he created heaven and earth by the power of his outstretched hand, right? So the fact that there's something rather than nothing is something that you have to be grateful for. And then he redeemed you by the blood of his son, which is something you need to be grateful for. And he's giving you the hope of heaven, which is something you need to be grateful for. And you see what I'm driving at. Is your life reflective of the owing that all that represents, and are you that thankful all the time? Now, you put all five of those together, and I'm ganging up on you on purpose, because Paul is desperate to understand for his readers and to get us to understand that condemnation is a very, very solemn thing. Here's the meaning of the word condemnation in chapter 8, verse 1. Strong's Concordance. Listen. The exact sentence of condemnation handed down after the due process of establishing guilt. So here's the image, brothers and sisters. The Holy Spirit is the prosecutor. You're in the dock, and the charge is, in front of the judge, so-and-so, i.e. you, me, is a sinner. And the question is, how much evidence does the Holy Spirit as prosecutor have to bring, to bear, to make his case? And earlier on in Romans, Paul uses an astonishing image to get us to understand the importance of chapter 8, verse 1. He says this, listen, every mouth is stopped. I want you to think about that for a second. Think about that image and think about what Paul's actually saying. What he's saying is amazingly powerful and very shocking. He's saying this. He's saying if we're charged with being sinners and the Holy Spirit marshals evidence, 
the evidence against us is so overwhelming, there's nothing to say in our defense. Every mouth is stopped. There's not even a point in having a defense attorney because there's nothing to say. We are utterly exposed. We are utterly guilty. Brings to mind a famous book from 1973 that starts this way. On a sunny day in September 1972, a stern-faced, plainly-dressed man could be seen standing on a street corner in the busy Chicago Loop. As pedestrians hurried by their way to go to lunch or business, he would solemnly every once in a while lift his right hand, point to someone near him, intone loudly, and then scream the single word, GUILTY! Then, without any change of expression, he would resume his stiff stance for a few moments before repeating the gesture. Then again, the inexorable raising of the arm, the pointing, and the solemn pronouncing of one word, GUILTY! The author writes, the effect of this strange pantomime on the passing strangers was extraordinary, almost eerie. They would stare at him, hesitate, and look away. Then they would look at each other, and then at him again, and then continue on their way. One man, he writes, turned to another and said, but how did he know? No doubt many others had similar thoughts. How did he know indeed? Guilty, everyone guilty? Guilty of what? Guilty of overparking? Guilty of lying? Guilty of arrogance and hubris toward the one God? Guilty of borrowing, not to say embezzling? Guilty of unfaithfulness? Guilty of evil thoughts? Of evil plans? Guilty before whom? Is there a police officer following? Did anyone see? Will they be likely to notice it? Does he know about it? But that isn't technically illegal, is it? From 1973. Oh, by the way, the book was titled, Whatever Became a Sin. That's Carl Menninger. Now here's the point, brothers and sisters, that you got to get. There's two things that are the reality you have to start with. If we're under condemnation, the first is we're guilty. The whole point of the manager quote is this. The reason we feel so guilty is we are guilty. There's what Freud called objective guilt and there's subjective guilt. We have both, not one, which is where most of the West is in the 21st century, right? There's only subjective guilt and you just explain to people that you shouldn't feel guilty, which always works, right? Not. Have you ever tried that with somebody? No, we're subjectively guilty and objectively guilty. But the second thing is we have nothing to say in our defense. Are you with me so far? All right, so that's the situation outside of Christ Jesus. Now, question two. If we were condemned and we're not now condemned, how did that happen? Answer, Jesus paid the penalty. Whenever you deal with guilt and with damage, there has to be repair. There's always a cost to forgiveness, brothers and sisters. There's always a cost... When something wrong happens, there are damages that are incurred that have to be paid. Okay, so take a small claims court example, right? And we live over in sort of back by um, Knightsville in Somerville, right? So somebody randomly drives in our yard and makes a mess of our lawn, right? And what do we do? We just stand there and say, oh, well, what's the big deal? You know, No, no, no. We get upset and we ask the person to uh, pay for the damages they've done. And they say, not, not on your life, up your nose of the rubber hose. In which case, maybe we take them to small claims court, right? But the point is, our yard is a mess, and something's got to happen. Either we pay for it, or they pay for it, but somebody's going to pay for it. 
It has to be that way. That's the way justice works, even in our very inadequate human justice system. We're not talking about human justice. We're talking about divine justice. We're talking about the fact that we are rebels as human beings, and we've rebelled against Almighty God. We have a, a system of words in America where if you do something wrong, it's bad, but then if you do something wrong with relation to the president, we actually invent other words, right? So the word for killing somebody is murder, but if you do it to the president, it's assassination, it's not murder, right? We actually invent a word because the higher the office, the worse it gets. Well, we're guilty of treason, but not against the president, against God. What's the price for that? Mm. Now here's the point, which is why there's now no condemnation, which Paul spent seven chapters trying to emphasize. One sentence. This is the gospel, brothers and sisters. He came to pay a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. Jesus on the cross paid that debt in full. It had to be paid. It was a God-sized debt. Human beings were responsible. Jesus, the God-man, paid it in full. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Do you live like that? Are you with me? One story about the payment of the price. One of my all-time favorites. I don't often say this when I preach, but I actually don't want you to ever forget this story. That's how important it is. Years ago, Nicholas, the first czar of Russia, was occasionally in the habit, for fun, of tossing aside royalty that he girded himself with regularly and attiring himself in the uniform of a lower officer and just sort of picking one of the many fortresses around his kingdom, and he'd just pay a random visit, disguised as a lower officer. On one occasion, he had a favorite young man, the son of an intimate friend of his, to whom he'd given a position in a border fortress in charge of the money used for paying off the soldiers. Unbeknownst to Nicholas, this man fell into bad habits. He took to gambling and by and by, which often happens with those who gamble, right? It just starts small, right? It's just nibbling. It's like how sheep get lost, right? Just the next tuft of grass and then the next one. He lost all his money and then he started playing with the Russian government's money and he lost almost all the Russian government's money. It had just started with a few rubles at a time. And it had gotten so bad that he received notice on the following day that an official from the court was coming to examine the records to count the money he had on hand. He felt he could never face the exposure of that day. And so the night before, he closed his door and he sat there and he made a calculation. He took all the money out of the safe. He brought all the books out. He looked at all the money he lost. He looked at all the government's money he lost. And he looked at the size of the debt and the little bit of money. And he decided there was only one thing he can do. And that was he needed to take his own life. And as he sat there, completely shocked and sobered by what he was calculating, he took out a note on a piece of paper and he wrote this. A great debt. Who can pay? You got me? A great debt. Who can pay? He knew it was impossible for him to ever settle. Looking at the small amount of money left, he thought, what a failure I've been. He made up his mind that he would not let the clock go past midnight without blowing his brains out. So he took a revolver and he went over and he looked at the, the money and he looked at the books and he looked at the piece of paper. And in spite of the horror of his situation, because he'd been drinking, he was overpowered with drowsiness and he fell asleep. Oh yes, remember? Nicholas is coming to visit. Oh yeah. It just so happened that on that night, 
On that day, Tsar Nicholas, attired as a lower officer of the guard, entered the fortress. By giving the proper password, he moved down the halls. Every light, of course, should have been off, according to regulations. But as he came down the main hall, he was surprised to see a light shining under a door. He went up to the door and listened, but there was no sound. He tried the knob. The door opened. He looked inside. He saw a sleeping officer, and then a little bit of money, and then the open safe, and then the books, and he wondered what it meant. He tiptoed in. He stood beside the man. Then he looked at the books and the paper, and he saw what was written on the paper. A great debt. Who can pay? The whole thing became clear in a moment to the Tsar. The young man had been systematically stealing from him and from Russia for months. His first thought was to put his hand on his shoulder, wake him up, and tell him he was under arrest. But the next moment, his heart went out to him in compassion. He remembered his own boyhood. He remembered his father. He thought about how brokenhearted his father would be if his son was arrested. And then he looked down at the paper again, and he saw that question. A great debt. Who can pay? Moved by generous impulse, he reached over, took the pen, and wrote one word on the piece of paper, tiptoed out, and closed the door. For an hour or so, the man slept. Then he woke suddenly. It was long past midnight now. He sprang to his feet. He picked up the revolver. He put it to his forehead. And he was just about to pull the trigger when his eye caught sight of that one word on a sheet of paper which he knew when he looked at it, wasn't there when he went to sleep. It was simply the name Nicholas. He dropped his gun. Can it be? He was stupefied. He went to the files. He got hold of some of the documents in the safe that had the genuine original signature of the czar czar, and compared them with the one on the piece of paper, and sure enough, they matched. It was the real signature of Nicholas, and he said, The czar has been here tonight. He knows all my guilt, and yet he has undertaken to pay my debt. I need not die. And so instead of taking his life, he rested upon the word of the czar, as indicated by the name written on the paper. And he was not surprised when, early the next morning, a messenger from the royal palace brought a sack of gold, which he counted and found to be exactly the amount of the missing money. He placed it in the safe, and when the inspector came later that day, he went over the books and found everything to be all right. Nicholas had paid in full. Now you know what I'm going to say. It is only a human illustration, but it pictures what the old hymn has right. Listen. Jesus paid all my debt, O wondrous love, widest extreme he met, O wondrous love. Justice is satisfied, God now is glorified, heaven's gate thrown open wide, Oh, wondrous love. One word spoke peace to that man's heart. Nicholas. One word speaks peace, brothers and sisters, to our hearts. It is the name Jesus. He has been made sin so that we who have sinned might become righteous in him. Jesus was treated as a sinner so that we can be treated as righteous. The biblical imagery for this is spectacular. I will remember their sins no more. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And my personal favorite, Isaiah 38, you have cast all my sins behind your back. We are forgiven, brothers and sisters. Do you know that? Are you grateful for that? Do you live in the light of that every single day? Are you with me?
So first of all, we are forgiven. We are guilty. We have nothing to say in our defense. Jesus had paid the price. We are forgiven. We stand righteous because of Christ. Point one. Point two. Everybody still with me? We are free. Now, a little bit less on this one, even though I want to emphasize it, but it's a hopeless assignment, so I've got to stop somewhere. So this is great stuff now. You've got to get this. The Holy Spirit is given to us in our hearts when we become Christians, when we appropriate Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf by faith. When I say, I trust in the sacrifice of Christ made in my place, and I see myself as righteous in God's sight because I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It isn't just that I'm forgiven of all my sins. It's that the same powers in me that created the world, you remember the Holy Spirit when it brooded over the nothing, right? And the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is put in our hearts. So it's not simply about the fact that we're given forgiveness and new life. It's that we're also given the new power to lead the new life. And that's what the rest of this chapter is about. Look at what verse 2 says. The law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. This is spectacular stuff, this image of freedom in the New Testament. It's got three dimensions, and I love uh, Romans, but I also love Galatians. And Galatians, I think, is even better than Romans on freedom. Here's uh, Romans 5, verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand fast, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The whole point of being forgiven in Christ is the Holy Spirit's unleashed in our heart, and it has three dimensions. We're freed from the past. We're freed from sin. We're freed from darkness. We're freed from hell. We're freed from judgment. That's one. Two, we're freed for righteousness. We're freed for holiness. We're freed for Christ. We're freed for discipleship. You with me? But those aren't the only things that are talked about. Did you catch that little word in in Galatians I just quoted to you? Us. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's real important, especially for American individualist Christians. Freedom in the Christian life is always corporate. I need you, you need me, more than you could possibly realize. We are a family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Our freedom is only fully manifest together. Together. We are the family of the redeemed. And a really free family is something to behold. So freed from sin, freed for Christ, freed with one another. To make it even more specific, freed with the family of Holy Cross. You may not like all the people in your family, but did anybody get to choose their brothers? You can talk to me after the service. Or you're, that's not how families work. You're stuck with us uh, from here to eternity, right? So we better get good at living it now. So let's think about this freedom for just a second and how it actually works. You have to be careful when you talk about freedom because in our culture, freedom is one of the most misunderstood categories imaginable. The way that I would put it in my own words, I was kind of playing around with it this week, is this. Freedom, in terms of our culture's understanding, is you are able to be whoever you want to be and to do whatever you want to do. That's, that's our definition as Americans of freedom. That's what it means, right? I think of Us magazine at the supermarket checkout counter, right? There it is. The culture of narcissism, right? Kind of writ large, right? So, or, or if you're into music, Madonna's Express Yourself in 1989, right? Don't go for second best, baby. Express yourself, right? I mean, that's kind of the, that's kind of the song of this culture, right? It's all about us. 
Right? And Jonathan's already quoted to you Rick Warren's book, which starts, it's not about you. <laughs> it's not about us. Well, I debated whether I was going to talk about the Queen, because Jonathan should probably talk about the Queen especially. But she means a lot to us. We're Anglophiles, after all. We lived there for three years. She was an amazing woman. There's so many dimensions of her life to talk about. But I wonder if we can think about her for a moment from this perspective. Is she not almost the ultimate anti-heroine in the light of this definition of freedom? I mean, can anybody really see Queen Elizabeth getting up there and saying, express yourself? Come on, baby. I mean, it just doesn't work. You don't think of the culture of narcissism. You don't think of, I am who I want to be, and I'm doing what I want to do. That's just miles from her. Here's Andrew Sullivan speaking this week about his queen. We know next to nothing about her life in relation to the other members of the royal family because whatever her life was about, it was not about her. Part of the reason I feel such grief today is related to how staggeringly rare her level of self-restraint seems today. Narcissism is everywhere. Every feeling we have is bound to be expressed. Self-revelation, transparency, authenticity. These are our values. The idea that we are firstly humans with duties to others that will require and demand the suppression of our own needs and feelings seems archaic. And yet Elizabeth kept it alive simply by example. Yes, exactly. But here's the thing I want you to think about. I think she was free. See, I think she's free. You've got to think about what freedom actually means. You know what it means, actually. You have examples all around you. It's just that they don't get talked about in the light of freedom. Think of athletes. Think of musicians. Think of artists. Think of Rafael Nadal, for those of you tennis people. I mean, who's really free to play tennis? He is. How did it happen? Random? Just decide to express himself? You've got to be kidding me. It's a life of discipline. Uh, working his body to the, to the bone over years and years and years. But you put him on a tennis court, and it's magic. It's the guy who took piano lessons from 3 to 23 who can get up and play Beethoven at the drop of a hat. He's the one that's free on the piano. I'm not. I didn't keep going with my piano lessons, dadgummit. But that's the thing, right? Musicians who, who practice music, they're the ones who are free. And, and you can look at her and say to yourself, she, she was very much free in the sense that the Bible's talking about. I think of the Anglican Collect. Do you know this Collect in um, Morning Prayer? It's called the Collect for Peace, whose service is perfect freedom. She was free in that sense. And if you read about her, she was ultimately totally at ease because she simply lived into the call that God put on her and in, into the role that God called her to. She's the ultimate anti-example to Madonna and the express yourself culture. And she points the way to true freedom. One story about freedom, and then I'll wrap it up. I really like this. It's of a guy in California who's doing a kind of a tour. He bumps into this guy one day, and the guy's job is to, is to dive in California for fish that people want to get in their aquariums and so forth. And he gets in conversation with him, and he finds out that the favorite fish in California, this is back in the 80s, may be still true, is the shark. But what I didn't know in reading this interview with this guy is what he says about sharks. If you catch a small shark and you confine it, it stays proportionate to the aquarium. Sharks, he says, can be six inches long yet fully matured. 
So he'd catch these dinky little sharks, and people put them in their fish tank, and they'd stay six inches. And then he says to the guy who's interviewing him, he says, however, you take the same shark and you turn it loose in the ocean, and they grow to their normal length, which is eight feet. And the man who involved in the interview says this, I think this also happens to some Christians. I've seen the cutest little six-inch Christians who swim around in little puddles. But the question is, are they willing to be put into a larger arena, into the whole creation, and realize that only then can they become so great? Think of her. You can make the case that Queen Elizabeth had arguably the greatest responsibility in the world, but you can also argue that she was the most free. So I give you the two images from this morning, brothers and sisters. We are forgiven and we are free. Now I'm going to go from preaching to meddling for just a second, then I'm done. I want to ask two questions. The first is about gratitude, and the second is about freedom. And the gratitude question I just want to ask is this. This forgiveness image makes me think of Luther. And this is really the way that he lived his life. The Christian life is not, brothers and sisters, lived from the world in. It's lived from the cross out. And part of the challenge in this Muzak 24-7 culture in which we find ourselves is, how are we going to live a life that reflects the degree to which God acted on behalf of us to give us the forgiveness with the gratitude we're supposed to if we don't start with the cross and move down? And Luther started every morning, and he pictured himself as a sinner beneath the cross, and he pictured himself clothed in the righteousness of Christ. In fact, in one point, he's attacked by Satan in this great scene, and he doesn't, he doesn't get a chance to figure out what to say, and he just looks at him and says, I am the baptized. But that's the way that he started out the day. He did, I am under the cross. I sit under the cross. So here's the question. How do you start your day? And I want to plead with you to start it this way. You didn't make yourself. You didn't make this day. You didn't make life. All those things you should be grateful for. But can you also be grateful for new life and not just life? Can you, can you spend a moment at the beginning of the day and simply say, I'm a child of God. I'm a forgiven sinner. Thank you. That is the call of this sermon as far as forgiveness. And the second thing is on the freedom thing. And I want to give you, if you're taking notes this morning, I want you to take this down. There's this little teeny section of Jeremiah. It's almost a throwaway section in chapter 12. And the Lord's kind of getting mad at Jeremiah because he's not doing very well. But what's interesting to me is how the Lord responds to Jeremiah when he gets upset with him. And what he basically says to him is, Hey, you're selling yourself and my call to you short. Get going. And here's what it says. This is chapter 12. You're taking notes, verse 5, Jeremiah. If you've raced with men on foot and they've wearied you, right? that's what he's complaining about. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, you're you're tired because you can't outrun these other guys. And then the next line is this. How will you compete with horses? I think this sermon calls you to ask the question, what is God calling you to be free in, in ways you haven't been before? The question is, what are you freed for? What are you freed to that you haven't been doing that God might be calling you to? That's a crucial question in the light of this sermon. Simple themes of a great vista, Romans 8. At the summit, brothers and sisters, let's be reminded, we are forgiven and we are free. Because of Jesus, because of his blood, because of the Spirit. And together we say, thanks be to God. Amen.